You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 25. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we're talking about the ivory trade and its impact on both elephant populations and human communities. Joining us, we have three experts who were involved in the production of a new episode of the series Earth Focus, which airs on Link TV, called Illicit Ivory. Raisa Scriabin is the series producer for Earth Focus. Kim Spencer is the co-founder of Link TV and a senior programming executive. And Miles Benson is the author of the blog, Kiss the Elephants Goodbye. We'll be chatting about their inspiration for putting this new documentary program together and how they were able to present this complex information in such an accessible way. We'll also be talking at length about the trade network that exists for Ivory um, and how and why it has expanded so dramatically over the past several years. And although this is a particularly troubling issue, it's not all doom and gloom. There is a glimmer of hope on the horizon, and we'll be talking about what viewers of this new program and this show uh, can do to help end the illegal trade in ivory and save the elephant. Let's jump into this interview. I'm here with uh, Kim Spencer, who is a senior programming executive at KCT Link. Uh, TV, and he's also been involved in, in Link TV uh, since the very beginning. Also here with me is Raisa Scriabin, who is the series producer of Earth Focus, and Miles Benson, who is a correspondent for Earth Focus and the writer of the Kiss the Elephants Goodbye blog. Uh, welcome to all of you, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, you bet. So, um, so we're here to talk about a new program called Illicit Ivory, which is about the illegal trade in ivory and its impact on elephant populations, but but also human populations. Um, th- this program will be premiering on May 29th on Link TV as a part of the Earth Focus series. Um, but before we jump into this discussion about the ivory trade, I, I-, I do want to start things off with uh, an-, an introduction to to Link TV to this platform. Um, so, Kim, maybe you can start off by telling us about your inspiration for creating Link, T- Link TV. You were uh, a, a co-founder of, uh, of this network, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, about 15 years ago, um, we had the opportunity to get a channel on satellite, on DirecTV and Dish Network. And we were a, a group of independent producers that um, saw that there were a lot of international stories that were just not getting covered on public television, which had very little resources to cover international issues, <clears throat> and the um, the window for international news on the networks uh, was also very limited. So we <clears throat> managed to get a 24-hour uh, channel, and um, and one of our earliest programs uh, were around environmental issues. We began working with Raiza and uh, very early on on developing a series that would focus attention on the environment, and um, that was the start of our focus. So Link TV has been around for, for more than 15 years now. 
Um, I, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering how, how the station has, has evolved over time. A lot's happened in the last 15 years in the world of media. You know, a lot hasn't evolved in the world of media. There was no such thing as YouTube 15 years ago and very few websites. Now that's all changed. But, you know, there is a role for <clears throat> channels uh, on television. And um, it's it's really important that we're able to reach about 7 million Americans all across the U.S., uh, who are looking for a different point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about about the Earth Focus series before we jump into our conversation about the ivory trade. Rice, and maybe you well, can explain sort of the mission and, uh, to us. Okay, well, we're, uh, we're broadcast uh, series. We're a 26-minute, 40-second uh, um, uh, time-wise program that's broadcast in prime time on both KCET and on Link TV, and uh, we're also web-streamed on the respective uh, websites of the two networks, and we're also distributed through social media. So we try to cover a broad range of environmental issues, you know, everything from climate change to water and drought uh, to wildlife. And uh, we work very closely with environmental filmmakers. We do original investigative reports. So I guess you could call us a very diverse environmental program. So uh, I, I do want to jump into this conversation about the ivory trade and about this, uh, this particular program, Illicit Ivory. Um, now, many of our listeners are probably aware of recent dramatic increases in the demand for ivory. This issue has been getting a lot of attention in the media. Uh, uh, several documentaries covering this issue have come out over the past year or two. So I guess I'm wondering what made, uh, what made you want to dive into this topic for an episode of Earth Focus? Well, very good question, and thank you for asking that. I, I think it's a wonderful thing that uh, the documentaries that have been made have been made. Um, the reason I wanted to dive into this is because uh, a very close friend of mine who is a professor of terrorism and international crime really told me a lot about uh, the criminal or syndicates that are behind uh, the ivory trade as well as the rhino horn trade and um, you know the extent to which it's, it's a, this trade supports insurgencies in a very unstable and fragile part of the world, uh, really, that consists of failing and fragile states. Also, where, you know, militancy is growing and the whole issue that uh, the loss of a potentially charismatic species, one of the most charismatic species in the world, is actually a national security and a global security issue, was, was very interesting to us. We were just concerned about where we can find all the B-roll for that because we, we didn't travel for the show. But uh, once we had very willing NGOs to work with us, it became uh, quite easy to do the research. Gotcha. So it, it sounds like there were certain facets of this issue that, that you felt were particularly important to, to share with viewers that maybe other programs or other news outlets like weren't, weren't covering to a, a certain extent. I think uh, the issue has been covered, but we wanted to go into greater depth on that issue and uh, to really put out uh, the facts that perhaps hadn't been reported or were not reported adequately. So I think that was our, our motivation. So, you know, it was reported that, you know, Ivory supports certain terrorist activities, but to what extent and how and how does it all work together? 
that really never came out, I think, enough. I, I think you're absolutely correct in that. And, and after watching the, the program, uh, I mean, it, it really paints, uh, it, it does an amazing job of laying out this in this complex trade network that exists for ivory. Um, and, and I do want to dive into that um, in, in, a, uh, in some greater detail, but, but I, I want to touch on um, another issue first, which is the imagery that we see in this program. Um, there, there's, there's some really troubling imagery that we see um, in, in the film. Um, we see footage not only of atrocities against elephants, but against people as well. Um, talk about the decision to include this graphic imagery. I think if you really want to convey the reality of what's going on in in Africa, you have to tell it like it is. And uh, the people that are behind the actual slaughter of the elephants are the groups that are slaughtering the people, slaughtering people in Darfur, slaughtering people, you know, throughout vast pockets of unstable regions of Africa. So you have the Joseph Konies, you have your Al-Shababs, you have your John Druids, uh, and you have militias, uh, government security forces, even members of the local armies, the, the country's armies, and presidential guards involved in killing uh, elephants, you know, to convey the fact that a lot of the people that are killing elephants are wanted for war crimes, you have to convey the severity of their crimes. And I'm speaking specifically of Joseph Coney in this case. A lot of this footage from watching, you can tell that, that it is archival footage. Um, and, and you mentioned that, that uh, you guys weren't on the ground in, in Africa shooting footage for this program, were you? No, no, we, we we don't have the ability to travel. Perhaps we'd like to, but we don't. <laughs> we operate on a small budget. <laughs> right, right. So I'm sure establishing sort of collaborative relationships with uh, with maybe other production companies or other groups involved in, in researching this issue was probably pretty important. Yes, we, you know, there in this modern age, you know, we have Skype interviews, we have telephones, we have uh, social media, we have many ways of contacting people. We did do interviews with sources on the ground in Africa by hiring local crews, you know, so we can supply the questions and uh, Skype in on interviews. So we, we did a lot of our research that way. Gotcha. So have, have any of you... Um ever ever had the opportunity to to travel to Africa um in in the past and maybe see some of the effects of of the ivory trade firsthand uh, well I think both Kim and I would have to respond separately to that um I have traveled to Africa for work uh when I worked in international development so I I've, I've traveled throughout uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo Ethiopia and Congo Brazzaville but I never worked on ivory issues. I was working on health issues. So I have a sense of what the terrain is like, but I have not personally had eyes on the ivory issue. When I visited uh, Africa, um, primarily uh, in Kenya to wildlife uh, refuges, um, it was prior to the time when organized crime, you could say, had gotten in, involved in, in poaching. Poaching was very much a problem, has been for a long time, but it's been on a small scale. But now when you have, uh, as was pointed out in this documentary, when, when you've got military forces who can come in on a helicopter and um, 
approach the elephants who'd sort of round up into a circle and then shoot them from above, um, I mean, it's just mass slaughter. And what has also changed is the um, organized process by which the ivory finds a market uh, globally. And so I, I think we're really facing, uh, as this film points out, a real risk of extinction at the rate that it's happening. Um, some of the um, figures that in the documentary, uh, um, some of the um, estimates of, you know, one elephant killed every 20 minutes uh, and maybe a sixth of all the remaining um, African uh, elephants could be gone just this year. Yeah, it, it is absolutely. It's 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 very shocking information. I'd like to hear from you, Miles. Uh, how do you sort of source your information when you're uh, uh, writing articles for your your blog? And and have you um, do you have sort of direct connections with folks on the ground in Africa that are involved in this issue? Actually, we did. Uh, Raisa was in touch with uh, a number of people who were doing that, and I spent some time analyzing the available information, uh, what had been published uh, on the whole general subject, and uh, talking to people, interviewing people who had uh, become expert in what was going on today on the ground in Africa. You guys have all touched on this component of, uh, of this issue, which is laid out in the, in the program, um, which is the level of complexity of this trade network that has been created uh, for Ivory. You know, watching this program really, um, it, it, it was really amazing to me to see the complexity of, of what's going on. I, I wonder if this was surprising to, to the three of you as well as you started researching uh, this story. Uh, very much so. Um, you know, wildlife crime uh, is said to be now the fourth largest transnational criminal activity uh, you, know, you have guns, drugs, people trafficking, and then you have wildlife crime. And ivory is a very, very huge part of, of that crime. Uh, what really struck me is that it's the same people that traffic humans, uh, that traffic guns and drugs that are also now trafficking ivory. And why? Because it's lucrative. Uh, so it's really human greed that um, drives it. But these groups, these international syndicates, are very well organized. They're very professional. They know how to move huge shipments in terms of volume and size illegally through multiple countries. They know how to get them out to market. They know how to launder the money. They know how to forge papers. They know how to pay people off. So, uh, you know, there's this incredible professionalism that, that has come in to the ivory trade, which is very, very troubling. At the same time, uh, you have um, greater militarization, professionalism in how to kill uh, elephants happening at the same time. You know, elephants have been poached terribly in the 70s and 80s, much worse, actually, in terms of quantity of numbers than they are now. Uh, and militias and insurgent groups poaching elephants. This is not a new thing. But what's new is 
the techniques that they use. You know, these are people armed with uh, satellite phones. These are people that are armed with night vision goggles and AK-47s. And the, and they shoot from helicopters, as was documented in, in, in a number of cases. You know, these are not things that, that are easy to come by. You know, these are um, uh, really hardware that they buy from uh, military groups. So, you know, the, the, you, but at the same time, to address this, you have to arm the people that protect the elephants. So you have more military hardware on uh, the side of the people that are killing elephants, and the rangers have to arm themselves to compete. So you have this growing militarization, more guns, more high-tech stuff that kills in very fragile and failed states in basically ungovernable areas. So, you know, this is a security issue. This is a governance issue. This is a huge problem. As you mentioned, you know, there's there's multiple layers of complexity to this issue. And, you know, there's, um, there's uh, sort of on the trade end and these... Uh, the, these groups that are moving this ivory, you know, from uh, out of Africa uh, into these markets. Um, but, you know, really what struck me and what really surprised me was the, the level of sophistication on the ground of these uh, these militia groups that are killing these elephants. And, you know, in, in the program, you highlighted one specific example where over 600 elephants were killed in a single very small park. Um, you know, within a two or three week period, a big part of this that um, that I wasn't aware of is the level of travel. You know, the fact that you have these militia groups traveling all across um, uh, Central and East Africa, you know, uh, to get to these uh, hotspots, these parks where there uh, are, you know, still elephants in uh, relatively large concentrations and they're just wiping them out. It's just, yeah, that, that level of sophistication on the ground is really what surprised me. Yeah, and there's another problematic thing. that The group you're referring to is, is the Janjaweed. They've been killing elephants for a long, long, long time. Uh, they're basically a government's affiliated militia uh, that was uh, behind the Darfur genocide. Um, but they, they came from Sudan all the way to Cameroon, to Bumanjida Park, to kill those elephants. And then they had to take the ivory back. So, you know, you have this extraordinary caravan that crosses international borders carrying illegal cargo uh, back to Sudan. Sudan has notorious ivory markets that both feed the domestic African ivory trade in Khartoum and Abdurman. But also these are port or these are uh, areas where ivory is um, a, a kind of containerized for shipment out of ports like Mombasa and Dar es Salaam and, and, and Zanzibar. Uh, but what's happening is these militias like the Janjaweed, they actually are beginning to work with organized crime networks because the organized crime networks commission the killing and the purchase of and the purchase the ivory that comes out. So you're, you're having this convergence of very very dangerous actors, you know, from these murderous groups in Africa to really unscrupulous criminal syndicates in Asia. It's coming together in the ivory trade. Another aspect of this that that really struck me um, is how recent um, all of this activity is. 
Um, and, you know, you point in the program to uh, this, this one particular incident um, in 2008 where uh, CITES, the, this international trade group that was responsible for banning the uh, international ivory trade back in 1989, um, in 2008 they approved this limited legal trade of stockpiles of, of ivory. Um, and you talk about how this really was the spark for this uh, recent uh, dramatic increase in the demand uh, for ivory. The simplicity of this really struck me. I mean, uh, could this really be, like, uh, I mean, this, this one incident, could this really have been the central cause of uh, this uh, recent very dramatic increase in uh, illegal ivory trade? I think that's a very good question. I don't think there's any one single cause, but it's when a lot of different causes converge together that it happens. So what the one-off sales did um, uh, under CITES is they, um, they sold off the stockpiles, the legal stockpiles, to first Japan and then China. And when you, more ivory shows up on the market, what does that do? That begins to fuel demand. So that's what I think those one-off sales did, is they fueled the demand or the lust for ivory. Now, what's happening in China? China is a growing economic power. It has a burgeoning middle class and a huge middle class. And what do they want? Something that is cultural and something that says that, oh, you know, I'm well off. This is a status symbol. Ivory is a status symbol in China. So it it created willing consumers who are able to pay significant bucks for the product. So I think it's a combination of these things. And once you have people who are willing to pay the big bucks, you have the people there that are willing to get it to you because they're going to make big bucks on it. So the organized crime syndicates come in, you know, it's just a combination of things all together that really is just unfortunate. So lots of other wildlife trade issues have have popped up in recent years, um, coinciding with this uh, dramatic increase in demand for illegal ivory that we've seen. Um, I, I wonder if, if if any of the three of you have sort of any any thoughts or insights uh, in, into this. I mean, do you, do you think the creation of this complex infrastructure that exists now for ivory trade has facilitated the trade of other wildlife products? Uh, well, I, I'll take a stab at that. Um, I think it does. Uh, I have been told that uh, because the same people that run guns and drugs and people run the wildlife trade, they use the same channels. So you find, you know, ivory kind of following where the cigarette traders, are, you know, following their routes. Uh, so, you know, there's definitely a convergence there. But um, wildlife trade is an increasingly lucrative operation because uh, for, for everyone involved, because the penalties are low, the corruption is high. Sometimes the heads of state involved, you know, generals, um, army officials, uh, police aren't going to go after people who are involved because their higher ups are on the take. So, uh, you know, that's a very, very serious problem for, for wildlife. But you find tigers, um, uh, pangolins, uh, monkeys, all kinds of animals are involved in the wildlife trade. And all together, 
It's the fourth largest international criminal activity in the world today. There's so many different topics to to sort of delve into in this, you know, within this umbrella of wildlife trade issues. Um, Do you have plans to sort of delve into any of these other uh, uh, topics uh, within the, the, the larger scope of wildlife trade? We uh, recently uh, came up with a very interesting piece uh, on um, the rhino horn trade, and actually it's a solutions-based piece. Uh, Our correspondent, Jeff Barbie, uh, went to Kruger National Park and uh, discovered that the most effective anti-poaching patrol is one that's run by women. It's the first all-ladies anti-poaching patrol. And uh, they just have the best record in in protecting the rhinos in in Kruger Park. Um, So uh, it's a story about that and about other measures that are being taken to save the rhinos. The rhinos are actually in more dire straits than than the elephants because of of rhino horn poaching. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a fascinating story. I I definitely look forward to to checking that one out. So I want to come back to... um, this issue of the complexity of this system, this network that has been created for uh, the illegal trade in, in ivory and wildlife products, um, it, it, it just seems to me that because of the level of complexity of the system, it, it almost makes this issue seem like it's out of our reach, like there's nothing we can do to stop it. Um, how, how did you work to make this issue seem actionable to viewers? Well... You know, you have to have hope, and we always like to end our programs on a a hopeful note, and here it's, of course, particularly challenging. Um, But there are things that are going on that that give people hope. Uh, Because of the complexity and the multifacetedness of this issue, it's attracted an extraordinary global constituency that's very diverse. You know, you have... Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, you have Interpol, you have groups that specialize in terrorism, you have governments all over the world, non-governmental organizations, private companies, you have celebrities, prominent individuals from the world of sports, the White House, uh, the Clinton Global Initiative, the Duke of Cambridge, you know, all of these are involved um, all of these institutions and people are involved in trying to address the the slaughter of Africa's elephants specifically. And that's a good sign because and there's more publicity coming out. And that's a good sign. Um, but to address the issue, you really have to address supply, the middlemen and the demand. Some very effective work on the demand side is being done by groups like Wild Aid that are working with Chinese celebrities who tell people in China that if you buy ivory, an elephant actually has to die. And a lot of people don't know that. And uh, some polling shows that uh, a large percentage of consumers in China would actually not buy ivory if it actually means an elephant has to die. So that, that's promising. And the involvement of celebrities there apparently is, is very effective. So if one can you know, cut down on the demand side, if one can tighten laws, 
that really would effectively ban ivory. We don't have that right now. There are too many loopholes uh, that allow, for example, antique ivory and then uh, illicit ivory masquerades as antique ivory. So you have to close those kinds of loopholes. Um, organized crime really operates for profit. So if you can cut into the profits of organized crime, if you can intersect the, the, the shipments that come out, if you can follow the money and charge them for this, um, you know, they will start looking for other more lucrative areas of operation. Right now, ivory is great because the penalties are low. It's a re relatively easy uh, operation to do. And the conviction rate is, is very, very low. So, you know, all gain, no loss for, for organized crime. You have to make them start losing money and profit. And then I think they'll start looking elsewhere. And you also need to, of course, address the, the supply side, you know, and uh, find better and tougher ways to protect and enforce that protection of elephants on site in Africa. But there you need the political will to do that. Despite sort of the direness of the situation, um, there, there are a lot of sort of hopeful threads and uh, ho hopeful stories within this. Um, I wonder if, uh, I mean, e either Miles or Kim, I wonder if either of you have, uh, you know, a a anything additional to share. I mean, maybe any, any sort of like hopeful component of this issue or this story that... Um, that you want to sort of highlight? I, I do um, think that it's going to take a lot um, of action on the part of um, people in the West to put the pressure. And there have been a number of documentaries recently, um, but um, still there hasn't been that much impact. And that's why I think um, the importance of Earth Focus is that we um, our programs uh, are on nationally and in, in the L.A. area and we um, repeat these programs very often. It's not just one documentary you go to. We have to keep repeating this message. Uh, I would add to, to that that uh, one of the problems is, is the, uh, is the um, law enforcement framework uh, on a global basis to deal with a global market does not exist. Individual countries, individual laws specifying what is and what is not allowed. And there's very little coordination among um, uh, the, the various nations that have a concern and would like to see something done about this. And there's not a lot of uh, coordinated strategy that uh, that has come into place uh, to deal with this problem. And that's why it leaves me uh, feeling very pessimistic about the outcome. But this is Raisa, but at the same time, I'd like to say that, you know, there are very, very responsible countries in Africa that are taking strides to, to address the problem. Uh, so efforts, you know, that are genuine and workable, I think, really need to be supported. Miles makes a really good point there, though, uh, you know, and I mean, this that this international organization, uh, CITES, I mean, it, it, it seems to me like they were able to have a really dramatic impact on uh, slowing down the illegal trade in ivory, or I mean, at, at that time it wasn't illegal, but by making the trade in, in ivory illegal back in 1989. Yeah, initially it, it had, it had uh, quite a bit of impact, and uh, it, it would look, it, it began to look as though uh, uh, the extinction that uh, people feared uh, was not going to arrive anytime soon. Uh, 
it, now it may have been just it took a while for organized crime to reorganize and uh, figure out ways to circumvent the rules. But the fact that they changed the wording of the CITES uh, regulations and they opened the market to new sources of ivory uh, just opened the door too wide, apparently, and, and uh, made it easier on the traffickers to do business. So, I mean, do, do we need a new, uh, I mean, do we need to start from scratch here? Do we need a whole new sort of international framework for regulating this type of activity? I don't see how you can get it, uh, get the problem under control without that. Or you simply need to take what you have and make it effective. You know, so, you know, you simply ban all trade. Right. I mean, do you, it, I mean, does this existing organization, CITES, I mean, do you think they have sort of the, the political willpower, willpower to do something like that? Well, I don't think anybody stands for, for the slaughter of elephants, and, and CITES has a very great and proud history of, of being an environmental um, international convention. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't think anybody's looking for slaughter of, of elephants. What they had allowed was the sale of stockpiles, um, which are completely legal, uh, what the unforeseen circumstances were uh, was that it would raise the demand for ivory. Um, so the question is, how can you amend or change or create the legal infrastructure that's necessary to totally ban ivory? We have 10 years to save the elephant, and we have to take extraordinary measures, and that certainly would be one of them. Yeah, I, I want to come back to Raisa. You touched on the role of the group Wild Aid um, and and the, the the role that they're playing in this issue through uh, uh, education and outreach um, in China. And and I I love that that this the work that this organization is doing sort of played this uh, important role in your program because I, I think that that the work they're doing is 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 really critically important to this issue. Um, and and it's also just fascinating to me, you know that. Uh, such a small percentage of the population in, in China actually understands that, uh, you know, what has to happen for that ivory to reach them, that, that these animals actually have to die. Um, and that it's, I, I mean, it, 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 it really makes the issue on a certain level, it simplifies it, right? Because, you know, all you have to do is say, yes, the elephant has to die for you to get that ivory. And they say, oh, okay, then I will no longer buy ivory products, right? The simplicity of it is uh, uh, really appealing. Um, but, I mean, that said, uh, I mean, do you think we can decrease demand enough to, to slow down this illegal trade in, um, in a realistic way? I think what Wild Aid is doing is absolutely brilliant, and I'm just thrilled that they're seeing the successes that they have. Where, um, it, where the problem arises is that changing human opinions and people's minds is a longer-term proposition. Um, so demand alone in a very short window that we have to save the elephants, you know, cutting the demand alone is not enough. You have to also uh, have other interventions. That's why I think you need the laws in place. You need the enforcement in place. This is a criminal operation. You have to go after it like a criminal operation. Very often this is still treated like, 
you know, a conservation issue. But no, it's an international security criminal issue. So the resources that go for tackling organized crime need to go for tackling the ivory trade. You know, so I think once you, you also get the organized crime under control to some degree and shift it over somewhere else, um, you, can, you can begin to make a faster difference. So I think you have to address at every level. Demand is just one part of the picture. You have to get the middlemen, you have to get the shippers, and you have to address the killing on the ground. That's got to stop. So what do you hope people will do after watching this program? What, what action, you know, in an ideal world, what action uh, do you hope your viewers will take after learning this information that's presented in the, in the film? Well, I, I think we all have something to say on that. Kim, do you, do you want to say a few words about that? Because KCT and, and Link have done some amazing things to, to engage uh, the state legislature in California and um, uh, to promote the program in, in broader ways. Yes, and and also there, um, there as you may know, there there's going to be an event at the LA Zoo on the 26th of this month that's drawing attention around the film, and and it's gotten quite a bit of a response um, by um, people in the entertainment industry in Los Angeles. I just think that the goal um, for Link TV and having a program like this is to bring attention uh, to these issues to. Uh, have an opportunity for the experts, um, like like you mentioned, Peter Knights at Wild Aid and others who got to, to be in this program to get more exposure. Uh, and then, of course, w- at our website, we, we provide links to groups that can take action. Yeah, uh, and I think what's very important for people to do is to, A, stop buying ivory, getting everybody they know to stop buying ivory, and then to start working on tightening the laws uh, to eliminate the loopholes that exist that allow for illicit ivory to come in and, and masquerade as, as legal ivory. You know, the more we can tighten that, the better. And maybe it has to be done state by state in the United States. Uh, but working towards those objectives, I think, is something that, that people can do. Yeah, so it, it it sounds to me like there's sort of two avenues um, as far as you know, a, as an individual, if you uh, uh, you know view this program and and you're hopefully inspired to to take some level of action to to have an impact um, on the issue. I mean, a is you know just talking to people. Obviously, you know, uh, uh, not buying ivory products, but also telling everybody you know and 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 sort of spreading that message around. Uh, you know, and something that that you touch on in in the program is that the demand is not just coming from China. Um, You know, the the sort of number two source of demand is from the United States, right? That's definitely an important point to make, I think, right? You know, stop buying ivory, tell everybody you know to do the same thing. And also, one of the things that are focused that's very important to us, and we've done for almost 10 years, is we, we make our shows freely available to anybody who wants to show them for educational purposes, for town meetings, you know, for advocacy purposes. So I do hope people take advantage of Illicit Ivory and show it and, and let people know what's going on uh, and, and who's really behind this slaughter of elephants, that it's some of the most dangerous and unscrupulous actors in the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. And th- and then of course, you know, that that brings up sort of the 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 number 2 sort of action that that folks can take uh after watching this program and learning a bit more about the issue, um which is putting, you know, pressure on uh political leaders um, you know, here in the U.S. to 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 take further action um, on, on this issue, which which I think is equally as important. So, thanks a lot for coming onto the show, uh, all three of you, and and sharing this fantastic information with us. And thanks for the work that you do in spreading awareness about this issue. Thank you so much, Matthew, and thank you for the opportunity. We appreciate it. Good talking to you. Take it easy. <laughs> yep. Thanks a lot. All right. That was our conversation with Kim Spencer. Raisa Scriabin, and Miles Benson. As I mentioned in the interview, I was just blown away by the level of complexity that exists within these trade networks for Ivory when watching this new program, and it was really enlightening to have this conversation with these experts on the issue. If you enjoyed this discussion, you absolutely have to make a point to watch this new episode of Earth Focus. It is shocking and troubling, but extremely important. This conversation was particularly interesting to me as we have just embarked upon our own film project here at Wild Lens dealing with a wildlife trade issue. Many of our listeners probably saw the recent announcement that we have begun production on our latest film, The Souls of the Vermilion Sea, which will follow efforts to bring the vaquita, that's the world's smallest and most endangered species of porpoise, back from the brink of extinction. It is a wildlife trade issue that is driving this animal's decline. However, it's not a direct relationship like it is with the ivory trade and elephant poaching. The vaquita is being killed as bycatch in the gillnets that are set for the tatuaba, a fish that is harvested exclusively for its swim bladder, which can sell for upwards of 10 grand in Chinese markets. We'll be dedicating the entire month of June on the podcast to the vaquita and the conservation issues surrounding its decline. But for now, be sure to check out Illicit Ivory on Link TV tomorrow night at 9 p.m. or online starting Friday, May 29th. Links to view the program and to see its broadcast schedule can be found on the show notes for this episode, which you will find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC25. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.